some of the results were total failures. <laughs> okay, a failure is a result as well. But the thing that freaks people out who really don't want to believe in this stuff is that we had some very remarkable successes as well. Mixed in with the failures, which you would expect when you're dealing with a phenomenon that you don't really know the causal chain for. We don't know what causes it or what or or the linkages that put it that make this all happen. As you'd expect, there would be failures because we don't exactly know how to optimize it. But there were some amazing and very astonishing successes. Uh, a few of the more classic ones, the ones that you often hear, for example, when uh, one of our remote viewers accurately described a new Soviet submarine, turned out to be the largest submarine in the world, and it was described as such. The structure of it was correctly described. A lot of the details about it was, were correctly described. In, in fact, even the launching date of it was correctly described. You ever wonder what mediums do with their free time? How about a 30-something-year-old gay medium living in New York City? Well, in this podcast, you're about to find out. Welcome to Ghost Daddy, a place where LGBTQ plus spiritual people and our cis-hetero allies, of course, have a place to just be themselves and spread their wisdom. This is the new face of spirituality. None of that love and light, toxic positivity crap. So pour yourself a vodka soda, <laughs> open up your mind, and start listening. You can listen to the Ghost Daddy podcast anywhere where you listen to podcasts. just happened. I'm your host, Liz Enton. If you listen to the intro, you know my story. If not, here's a brief summary. I'm a science skeptic, and when my dad died, I took a shot in the dark and decided to investigate if there was any possible evidence of an afterlife. I assumed that was as realistic as Santa Claus, but I was desperate. However, I was so blown away by what I discovered that I wrote a book and launched this podcast. In this podcast, I will be talking to some fairly normal people about some really weird shit. I speak with everyone from psychic mediums and afterlife researchers to ordinary people who've had some inexplicable experiences. So come, listen, there's no need to draw any final conclusions. Keep an open mind and wonder, what the fuck just happened? Hi, everyone. I have a special guest today. I took a class with him at the Rhine very early on in my research, and he taught remote viewing. He is Paul H. Smith, PhD, retired Army major. So obviously a very credible person. So Paul, go ahead and introduce yourself. Yeah, I like to think of myself as incredibly credible. <laughs> so yeah, I'm I'm a retired Army intelligence officer, and for seven uh, seven years, the whole time I was a captain in the Army, I was actually a psychic spy for the military. 
I'm not just kidding. That was really true. I was recruited to be a remote viewer for the what's now become known as the Stargate program. And I was trained to uh, use my consciousness, I suppose you could say. I could extend my consciousness into foreign lands and spy on possible foreign threats uh, against the security of the United States and, and the Western world in general. So in, in addition to all that, I, of course, spent 20 years in the Army and, uh, and a Desert Storm veteran and other standard military stuff. But when I got out, I formed a business, a company, which commercially teaches the skills that I was taught in the military to civilians. They declassified the program I was in and the end of the Cold War, and that allowed me to do something like that. Uh, Along the way, I acquired a PhD in philosophy, and and it ties right in with this applied consciousness, as I call it, this remote viewing stuff, because I studied philosophy of mind, consciousness, and philosophy of science. Uh, I know that there are a lot of skeptical people out there who don't believe that ESP is real, that remote viewing can possibly really work, which is one of the reasons I focus on the philosophy of consciousness, because I understand those arguments, and I have good responses for them. And uh, generally citing all of the really well-attested, scientifically-derived evidence that ESP actually is a real thing. Well, so first of all, I want to say thank you for your service. We all really appreciate that. Well, let me say something about that. People are always thanking me for my service, and I, I do appreciate the thanks. But I have to say, the Army gave me so many fun things to do that I kind of feel a little embarrassed sometimes to be thanked for my service when I was having such a good time. <laughs> Well, I'm glad to hear you're having a good time. That's really the ideal life, serving people and enjoying it. So you kind of solved one of the major life goals, I think, of all people. And you're solving the biggest mystery, what is consciousness? At least somewhat. I don't think anyone has solved that yet. Or There are lots of people who think they have, but it's pretty obvious they are deluding themselves. Why don't you explain exactly what is remote viewing? You know, I wish I could explain exactly what remote viewing is. (laughs) Unfortunately, nobody can. We have a general idea. Uh, Well, we have have some general hypotheses and speculations. We know how the nuts and bolts come together. We don't know really what makes it work. But but usually when people ask me to to define it, I'll say something like this. It's a skill that anyone can learn that essentially leverages an underlying human faculty that everybody has that allows us to, in some way, extend our consciousness beyond the borders of ourselves and obtain information, uh, experiential data, that kind of uh, stuff. From from targets, locations, people, events, whatever that are on the other, you know, removed from us by distance, shielded from us by some kind of intervening thing, or actually distant, interestingly, in space, in time, past or future. So I think very first question before we get into some more examples is what exactly is Stargate? Ah, Stargate, yes. So the first thing, so that's a, a essentially, I, I guess people would go, they mostly understand what, the word, what a code name is, right? So it's a sort of a code name for an official military and uh, intelligence community program that uh, attempted to research, validate, and then use practically 
extrasensory perception in it in its various forms to try and ultimately to obtain information for threats. So the program started off it's had a lot of different names over time, and it depended on who was funding it in the government at any given time, largely, or if they needed to just change it for security purposes. The, its earliest code name was Scanate. Uh, ultimately, it became known as Grill Flame, and the military, the army side of it, was also known as uh, Center Lane and Sunstreak, and ultimately, it all came to be called Stargate, uh, not long, actually, before it was declassified. So it's come to be called Stargate. Now, I have to tell people that name originated with us. It was long before there was a movie. It was long before there was a a TV series called Stargate. And there's a difference in how it's written. Stargate, the TV series and the movie, is one word, Stargate. The military program is two words capitalized, so Stargate, separate words. Now, the word actually, the name actually... Here, here we are into trivia. Sorry about that. The name actually uh, was created and invented for this program, and the person who who came up with it, Dale Graff, did not know that it had been used earlier back in the 50s. It was the title of a science fiction book by Andre Norton, who was a very early science fiction writer, and she had a book called Stargate, and it was a lot like the Stargates that are portrayed in the movie and the TV series. We had nothing to do with interstellar travel through wormholes. The, the military program had nothing to do with that. It was all about applied consciousness. It's all about remote viewing. And Stargate's been declassified now, right? So fascinating. Anyway, what were some of the most remarkable results you've gotten from Stargate? Well, I'll, ma- I'll make the skeptics happy here and say some of the results were total failures. <laughs> okay, a failure is a result as well. But the thing that freaks people out who really don't want to believe in this stuff is that we had some very remarkable successes as well. Mixed in with the failures, which you would expect when you're dealing with a phenomenon that you don't really know the causal chain for. We don't know what causes it or what or, or the linkages that put it that make this all happen. As you expect, there would be failures because we don't exactly know how to optimize it. Right? But there were some amazing and very astonishing successes. Uh, a few of the more classic ones, the ones that you often hear, for example, when uh, one of our remote viewers accurately described a new Soviet submarine. It turned out to be the largest submarine in the world, and it was described as such. The structure of it was correctly described. A lot of the details about it was were correctly described. In, in fact, even the launching date of it was correctly described. It, when no other arm of the U.S. government had any inkling about the details that this that the remote viewer produced. So, I mean, that's one of those hermetically sealed cases where there's no way the viewer knew anything about this because nobody else knew anything about it either, and yet was able to describe this submarine. It was it ultimately launched. It became known to the West as the Typhoon and uh, was, was a game changer for a long time during the Cold War. So that's one good example. It, we, we, in fact, had what was called the Red Book, which was a compendium of some of our best successes. One of them was uh, identifying listening devices that were targeted at the U.S. Embassy in Madagascar. Soviet, of course, they're always the ones who are, not always, but often the ones that are up to it. We see uh, remote viewers successfully described the outcome of a Chinese nuclear test back when the Chinese were first developing nuclear weapons. We also did some very good reporting on Pakistani nuclear weapons program. 
That submarine story was pretty amazing. Who was that? Was that Ingo Swan? That was Joe McMoneagle. Um, yeah, Joe McMoneagle. Yeah, Ingo actually had some successes as well. Uh, of course, he did. he's the one that invented remote viewing. So Joe McMoneagle was part of Stargate. And what was the assignment he was given? And how exactly did he do it? The way this worked, of course, is uh, remote viewers have to be blind to the target. In other words, they can't know what the target is up front. They can only be told what the target is after they're all done remote viewing. And there's there's a the skeptics would say, well, that's that's the kind of condition you need to keep them from cheating. Frankly, it's a condition that's absolutely essential to keep them from being wrong. <laughs> because when you know what the target is up front, then everything you already know about or could imagine can guess about it, all that is right there in your head. And uh, we call that mental noise. That can actually obscure the signal, because the signal is very, quite very subtle, very nuanced. And uh, if you have all this racket going on in your head, guessing, speculating, whatever it might be, that can smother that signal. And so we need, we need to keep the viewers totally blind so that that kind of nonsense isn't happening. So they can recognize the information that we don't have, that we need to know that's coming in very subtly. So Joe is blind to the target. How so? He was told, go look for this area? Well, no, no, no. Back then they were using geographic coordinates. So the, the, the backstory here is that there was a huge structure the Soviets built on the edge of a bay on the White Sea. And the building was big enough to actually to fit two one and a half U.S. fleet-sized aircraft carriers end-to-end, which is massive, <laughs> right? And they were building something in there, and the CIA couldn't figure out. Well, this was actually a, a National Security Council project. The NSC didn't know what the heck was going on in there. So they needed to know because they knew the Russians didn't do something like that at that scale that wasn't. In fact, they were kind of afraid that they, they were the Soviets were actually building their first fleet-sized aircraft carrier, which would change the balance of power, you know, uh, to some degree. So one of the uh, a staffer on the NSC knew about the remote viewing program. The Navy captain uh, and this uh, Navy captain brought the project to Fort Meade. Now he didn't tell him. Obviously, he didn't tell him what was in there because he didn't know. I mean, we got satellite photos of the roof. We couldn't get any signals intelligence out of it. You know, we couldn't get any spies in there, human intelligence, and none of that was working. So he brings this project to uh, to Fort Meade, and he uh, shows them the the project managers in the what became Stargate. He shows them the satellite photo of this building and said, we need to know what's going on inside here. And so how this worked is, and the one managing the project was, we call him Skip Atwater. Now his, his name is actually F. Fred Holmes at water. Back then, we called him Fred because that was his formal military name, right? So Skip um, tasked Joe and another guy, Hartley Trent, on this, blind, totally blind, and uh, gave him just gave him the latitude and longitude. So Joe and Hartley proceeded to independently generate sketches and descriptions of a building. And when you look at these sketches, and they're available now to see, they are really quite remarkable, considering that all they had was lat longs, you know, geographic coordinates. Neither one of them had any prior knowledge about this target. They did not have the option of looking up on, on Google Earth, because Google Earth didn't exist, right? And they, the sketches are remarkably accurate in terms of that. So once they had produced these sketches, then Skip knew they were on, and then he just showed him the satellite photos of the roof of this thing. 
And he essentially said the same thing. We need to know what's going on inside here, right? And, and they were using a form of, of remote viewing called extended remote viewing, where uh, essentially you lay on a bed. I, I like to joke we were the only U.S. Army unit that had a bed as a as a piece of operational equipment. Right? So Sounds nice. Everyone wants your position and job then, right? Use of that. I got a lot of afternoon naps over there. But uh, you lay on a bed and you establish this mind awake, body asleep condition, hypnagogic states, the formal name for it. And then the idea is that that brings your conscious awareness close to the threshold and it cuts down on the mental noise. I have never found that to be true, but it worked quite well for these folks. So, um, so Joe was using that, that approach and, and he was given the coordinates again. And then he was asked to describe what was inside, as did, as same with Hartley. And uh, the ultimate outcome is very striking. They described that there were a, a number of these things. They look like pregnant kazoos. That's the, that's the, the way I describe them. But, they, but they're clearly submarines of some kind. And they said there are two or three of these being built inside, but one of them is really, really, really big. That was all true. There were a couple of other subs being built in there, but particularly this massive typhoon submarine. And uh, Joe proceeded to describe it, sketch it in his sketch, although it's not exactly correct, considering he was doing it from, what, 10,000 miles away? I'm not quite sure how far away it is, but it's roughly 10,000 miles away without any technical means strictly projecting his consciousness inside a building that was essentially totally sealed up from outside observation. Considering all of that, his sketch was remarkably accurate. And in fact, when the submarine was floated out, then he gave a rough estimate as to when it would be launched. Again, this is a future prediction thing, right? Because he had no, no way of knowing that in normal terms. He was, he was quite accurate within just, I think, a few weeks uh, of, of when it actually did appear and was seen finally on, by our satellites. It is remarkable, absolutely remarkable. That just shows how time, consciousness, everything works so differently than we understand. And you'd mentioned there were a few other remarkable examples, either in Stargate or just other remote viewing stories. Well, there was in Stargate were some, and there was actually a fair number of them. Some of them wouldn't seem remarkable to somebody listening in because they're fairly prosaic intelligence collection. Uh, successes uh, on kind of boring kind of targets, right? But there was one that was quite dramatic, and that's one that I did, actually. And it was what made it even more dramatic than just the events itself, which were significantly dramatic, was that I perceived this target and accurately predicted it was an event 50 hours before it actually happened. And uh, the way this unfolded, it was uh, May of 1987, and one of my colleagues took me over to the operations building, said we're going to do a remote viewing project or session, uh, operational. Okay. Did my normal cool down. I went and laid on the bed and got about a 10-minute nap. It was great. And then I went in and started to work. He gave me the tasking number. Uh, by then, we weren't using geographic coordinates. We were using arbitrary numbers that had a, a particular mission assigned to them. So in this case, the tasking number was assigned, intentionally assigned, something along these lines, described the most important event for us to know about in the next few days, us being interpreted as the Department of Defense. So all I got was the number. I didn't know this was into the future. I had no idea what it was. It could have been another. We, did, we were doing a fair number of uh, hostages in the Middle East at the time. You know, Westerners had been captured by Hezbollah and, and then were being held captive in Bekaa Valley in, in Lebanon. 
uh, we're doing a number of those. Um, so it could have been that we've done a lot. We're doing a lot of Russian and Chinese science technology targets, all, all kinds of stuff. So I had no idea what it was. So I go in and I, I get the number and I start working on it. And, and I'll, I'll summarize here. I, I got the impression of a warship of some kind sailing in an enclosed body of water. And I had this impression, that, sort of a guess, that it seemed to be an American destroyer. That was my, what we call analytical overlay, sort of a, a conjecture, right? And then I got the perception of an aircraft off in a distance, uh, quite a ways out, and it drops uh, a couple of cylindrical objects with little stubby wings that make a roaring, guttering sound and fly around. And these objects then encounter this warship, and there is smoke and fire and and consternation amongst the people on the ship, and the ship kind of goes, leans over, and... Uh, and this is what you're envisioning at this point. This is what I'm getting, yes. This is the impressions that are coming in. And uh, and it went on from there. And after a little while, my colleague, who had actually had some preconception about what I was going to get, which turned out to be totally wrong, his his preconception was wrong, and he said, well, you're off, you know, we'll, we'll stop there, you're off. But that's okay, because nobody's on all the time, which is absolutely true. I mean, you have plenty of failures to mix in with your successes. And I said, okay. So I, you know, went home for the weekend. Uh, at the time, I was a single parent. And, and on Monday morning, I, I get up, and I'm getting my kids ready to go off to school. And and uh, I get a phone call from Skip Otwater. <laughs> Skip says, where's that session you did on Friday? And I said, well, it's in my safe drawer. Why do you care? I was off. He said, you haven't looked at the papers this morning, have you? <laughs> so I go get my copy of the Washington Post, and there it is. A U.S. frigate, which is kind of like a small destroyer, had been attacked by an Iraqi jet that fired Exocet missiles at it and hit it and blew it up, and it had gone over like that. And uh, unfortunately, 37 American sailors were killed in the attack. And this was totally unprovoked. And in fact, at the time, we the, we were co cooperating with the Iraqis because they were at war with the Iranians. And so completely took everybody surprised, you know, what the heck. But I had done that session, and I was able to trace it back. The attack had happened 50 hours after I had done my session. But the interesting thing about that session, one of many interesting things, was that I had given a very explicit and precise detailed description of what happened. And there was, you know, oftentimes remote viewing session, you get a lot of additional mental noise that you separate out. This one had very little of that, surprisingly. Um, and I was later able to compare the Navy after action report. I, had, uh, I was in a uh, master's program in, in uh, strategic intelligence through the Defense Intelligence Agency. One of the classes was indication and warning. And one of their classic case studies was this attack. Uh, because it showed just the failings of indications and, war and warning, right? And so I was able to get a copy of the official Navy after action report and compare it to my session. And I, everything that happened was in my session, you know, in, in bigger terms. And nothing in my session turned out to be wrong, including some things I thought were wrong originally, turned out to be right. And they were right there in the after action report. There's actually the, the probably the cleanest and the most comprehensively successful remote viewing session I ever did before or since. In fact, it was such a remarkable thing that I I often feel a little embarrassed taking credit for it because it's like it just, it's almost like it happened. You know, the session came to somebody else. I mean, I, I 
was where I did it, but it was just out of any other sort of experience I'd had remote viewing in how it turned out. So um, that was a very remarkable event as well. Now, of course, because we thought it was off, we didn't report it up the channel, might have been able to save some Americans, but uh, that was unfortunate. But at least it is a lesson learned, you know, what can be done with remote viewing uh, and and maybe how we should uh, at least come up with better ways of treating the data we produce. Those are some remarkable stories. And sounds like Stargate was very successful. But so you joined the Army, and then how did you get involved in Stargate? When you got recruited for that, I'm sure that's the last thing you were expecting to be doing. As I like to say, and it's true, I had never put the words remote and viewing together ever when I was first told about this program. So let me back up a little. So I enlisted in the Army to be an Arabic linguist. I was interested in the Middle East. I was at Brigham Young University. They had a Hebrew program, and I'd taken every class available in that. They didn't have any Arabic at the time. Now they've got a a world-class Arabic program, but back then they didn't. And so my wife at the time, she'd had ambitions to be a Russian linguist in the Army, and because of a back injury, she was not able to do it. She was not able to enlist. So she kind of, I don't say twist my arm, but let's just say encouraged me, right? To, you know, we were starving students at BYU and, and I couldn't get the classes I wanted. And she said, Well, the Army will pay you to learn Arabic. And so finally I gave it a try. And sure enough, they did. And I went and learned Arabic. And it turned out to be a really good decision, the whole thing overall. But I was going to learn Arabic and get out and then get, you know, go to a master's program somewhere in Middle Eastern studies. But I was washing Jeeps. As an Arabic linguist, my job was to change oil and wash, and wash Jeeps. It, uh, in the motor pool because we didn't really have a mission at the time. And so we were there just in case there was a war in the Middle East, but we were busy doing grunt, literally grunt work, you know. So I saw, had the opportunity to go to Officer Canada School. He said, I'm doing that. Well, well, it didn't help that I'd been cross-trained as a radio jammer operator. So what you do is you go out on the right up to the front of the battle, you hoist this massive antenna, and you start trying to blow out the enemy communications with very loud electromagnetic signature across the radio band. And unfortunately, radio jammer operators are target number one for the enemy artillery. And so they figure if you're a jammer operator, your life expectancy is about 15 minutes in a real fight. And I said, nah, there's got to be something better than this. <laughs> so so I went, went to Officer Cannon School. And from then on, I just was having way too much fun to want to get out of the Army. So um, I came back from a tour of the Special Forces in Germany and uh, and went to an Army school and ended up at Fort Meade, Maryland in a Mideast-type job. It was a little tedious. It was kind of a bookkeeping job. But I'm, I'm sitting there at Fort Meade. And I, I happened to have moved, did not know this at the time. Uh, I happened to have been assigned quarters that shared a wall with Skip Atwater. You know, we were in these townhouse units, and he was on the, his family was on the other side of the wall. And across the street was Tom McNair, who was a currently remote viewing and viewer and training. And I had no idea what these guys did. You know, in fact, I was really curious because here we are on Fort Meade. You may not know what people's missions were, but you knew what discipline they were in. Fort Meade was very heavily signals intelligence because the NSA was stationed there, was, was located there. But there was human intelligence. I worked for a human intelligence outfit. And there was even some imagery intelligence going on. I asked Tom and Skip one time at a party. I said, well, what do you guys do? They said, well, we can't tell you. And I said, well, 
you can at least tell me what discipline you're in. Uh, they look kind of, I said, well, are you in SIGINT? No. Are you in HUMIT? No. Are you in IMIT? No. Are you in MAZIT? No. Well, what else is there? <laughs> are you doing intelligence? Yes. Well, what oh kind of God. intelligence? We can't tell you. I go, what the heck? <laughs> this is crazy. Yeah, that's crazy. So, oh so anyway, then one day they come over to my house, knock on the door, and they said, you know, Paul, we've been watching you. We think you might be good at what we do. I said, well, I, you won't even tell me what that is, you know. I was dying. I really was. Because, you know, first of all, if you're, if you're not curious, you don't belong in military intelligence anyway, right? So um, I was dying. But they said, well, we'll I'll tell you what. We'll, we're going to have you take some tests if you're willing. And if you score where we think you're going to on these tests, then we'll read you on and you can decide whether you're going to volunteer or not. Because they couldn't mandate, they couldn't force you to do this in the Army because it was a, it was like airborne training. You have to volunteer to do it. And at any point you decide you don't want to do it anymore, then they can't make you, right? So I took the test and I scored about where they wanted me to. And then Tom takes me over to their building, which was about a five-minute walk from my house. And sat me down. And you have to envision this. I've told the story lots of times, but I don't never get tired of telling it. So Tom, of course, lives in military housing across the street on Fort, a military installation, Fort Meade. He wears button-down shirt collars, jeans, and has a full beard. And yet on his door, it says, uh, Captain Thomas, uh, I forget his middle name now, but Thomas, Thomas McNair, right? And Skip was always wearing civilian clothes, too. And I'm and so here he is. He sat me down here. I'm sitting here. I'm in uniform. I've just signed out these, filled out these forms that essentially, they were more serious than any of the uh, of the compartment and intelligence uh, briefing documents I ever signed before. Tom says, we collect intelligence against foreign threats uh, using a parapsychology discipline called remote viewing. We're inviting you to volunteer to become a psychic spy, or words to that effect. And and I and I instantly surprised him by saying, "Okay, I want to do it." It was it was most people take some time to think about it, right? I didn't. So I'll tell you why they picked me. So they were looking at the time. There was a new contract that was being let with SRI International, which is where the training was being done. It's a massive government contractor out in California, Menlo Park. Training was being done through SRI International, and they had this new contract. They needed three people to. Uh, to assign to it. So we're looking through the, uh, and you can't advertise for a thing like this, obviously. Yeah, wanted psychic spy trainee, you know, you, you don't, you can't do that. Oh my God. Ima yeah, imagine the people, first of all, who would show up, and secondly, the credibility that would give to. So they were assessing all the people they knew, and they were looking for intelligence officers who were accomplished in their career field. They had good report cards. They they did what they're supposed to do. They, they got through their their military education to that stage properly and all of that, but then also had something that was unusual for a military officer, some involvement in some creative field, what you might call right brain activity, right? So maybe you're into drawing or painting some kind of studio art or music. They they perform the recompetent musical instruments, whatever, or maybe creative writing or or something. And languages, also foreign languages, uh, was another qualifier. Uh, but not a qualifier, but another indicator, um, which is not as unusual in the military intelligence field. There's lots of foreign language competency in intelligence world, but uh, it and it's, but they discovered as they got to know me that I had majored in art at BYU before I shifted to Middle Eastern studies, 
Uh, in fact, I have illustrated textbooks and science papers and stuff, you know, for various folks at BYU. That I've been playing guitar for 20 years about then. That I um, like to write short stories and send them off and get rejected. And uh, and that I was fluent in German and had was had competency in Arabic and Hebrew. So they added all that up and said, "Well, we can't not try this guy out. Maybe he won't won't do well, but but he's got he's he hit all of the wickets, you know. So he's he, we at least got to give him a try." And so that that's how I ended up in the program. I had no idea that anything like this existed. I did have. This is also part of the story. I guess I did have a, an interest in ESP as a kid, reading a lot of science fiction stories, which is how I know about Andre Norton because she wrote uh, a number of books where ESP was was part of the of the storyline. But I had been in a junior high science fair project uh, using the ESP cards, you know, with the the stars and the wavy lines and all that stuff. It totally failed. So I had by that point become a bit of a skeptic. I really. I figured, well, ESP is great in a science fiction story, but it, it doesn't seem to work. So I had not, I wasn't really believing in it. And yet here they were. Obviously, the government was paying to train people in this. There had to be something to it. So that's why I didn't want to be left out. I absolutely wanted to do it. So you said that when you first were called, you didn't really believe psychic was real because of your experience with the Zener cards, the squiggly line cards. And so... After your experience being part of Stargate, what do you think now? How much did your mind change? Oh, hugely. Change is probably the right word because I really, really wanted ESP to be true. Now, a skeptic would say, well, you're, this is just kind of a self-fulfilling thing, right? Your you're self-deception. You want it to be true, so you conclude that it is. But skeptics often do not know what they're talking about. And this is clearly the case of that. While that is a phenomenon that can happen, once you have sufficient evidence, it's totally the wrong answer, right? And I've seen plenty of evidence that absolutely confirms me this stuff really works. As someone who's been skeptical myself and scared of lying to myself because yeah. I came to this through grief, yeah, when you start putting out the data, it's not it becomes undeniable. Yeah, that's well, it can still be denied. There's there's no limit to to the uh, self deception capability of human psychology. And that includes skeptical self-deception as well. Uh, and that happens all the time. Uh, skeptics are always happy to talk about confirmation bias and say it afflicts people believe, who believe in ESP. Frankly, I've seen just as heavy, what's the word I want to know, just as pronounced uh, confirmation bias, bias amongst skeptics as I've ever seen amongst people who are believers in ESP. They are just as vulnerable to these human weaknesses as everybody else. Care is a charity organization founded by Emma Justice after the loss of her father, David Justice, to glioblastoma. Club Care is dedicated to supporting children and families dealing with cancer. They strive to create joyful moments through meaningful projects impacting individual families as well as larger oncology communities. Funding for all projects is raised through philanthropic donations. Go to makingheadway.org backslash clubcare programs for a complete list of programs and activities. So now along the skeptical lines, I have read and heard from some people who say 
Stargate was closed because it was a failure. What do you have to say to that? That explanation is a failure. <laughs> okay. Now, on the other hand, uh, there are a lot of folks who say it was closed because it was too successful. Neither answer is correct. Uh, it was closed ultimately because of the skepticism of certain decision makers. At least that's the, the closest I can come to an explanation here. At the time, it, so in 1994, a decision was made to transfer the program from the DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, to the CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency. And that, that's a whole complicated political back and forth why that happened. But at the time, the CIA was headed by John Deutsch. I think his name is John. I keep looking it up and forgetting it. John Deutsch, who was a rabid anti-remote viewing skeptic. He, he had been trained, as I recall, as a nuclear physicist of some kind. So he's a very physicalist-oriented, scientific thinker kind of a guy. And uh, he was famous for throwing people out of his office if they even brought up the idea of remote viewing. In fact, Dale Graff was supposed to, now let me remember if this is Dale's story. I'm pretty sure it's Dale. Uh, Dale Graff was supposed to brief him on remote viewing at one point when he was, when when Deutsch was, see, you know, the, these details are a little fuzzy, but they're easily verified, right? Easily checked. Uh, Under Secretary of Defense, uh, Under Secretary of Defense, I think was what his job was at the time. And uh, Dale was supposed to brief him on it. And Dale went in and as soon as he started talking about remote viewing, uh, Deutsch kicked him out of his office. He wouldn't even listen to him. And so this is the guy that's director of the CIA when they're trying to transfer for the project there. And, and it's not really a surprise that it got terminated, right? That it, that was, uh, well, it didn't get terminated. What It did get terminated. So what happened was the CIA accepted the program and the day the transfer happened, June 30th, 1995, the day the transfer happened, it was the program was closed. The people were sent packing. And, uh, and the slots, personnel slots, were sent elsewhere. The CIA very cynically said, well, we don't want to do this program, but here are 12 personnel billets that we can use wherever we want if we cancel the program. And so that's what they did, unfortunately. And he didn't even check the data. Am I correct in that? Well, so nothing like this happens without other people being in the loop, right? So underlings... Uh, did check the data. But what happened was the CIA had this a priori decision not to accept it, not, not to do the program. But they still had to go through the motions because there's some pretty powerful senators and congressmen who wanted the program preserved. And so they had to pretend like they had done due diligence. So, so they commissioned uh, the American Institutes of Research, which is uh, another kind of a think tank, to go and do a review of this whole thing. Uh, supposedly. And so they went and they did a data search. They did not do a data search. They uh, they commissioned outside experts to evaluate the research that was done. And that included one of the most arch skeptics, Ray Hyman, the psychologist at the University of Oregon. But they also, to their credit at least, brought in Jessica Utz, who was one of the leading statistical scientists in the world. And Ray Hyman was is totally opposed to ESP. Jessica Utz started off objectively and ended up being convinced that the stuff was real because of the research that she both observed and, and performed. And anyway, so they created the study. 
And the study in the end found that remote viewing didn't work in operational setting. What they don't tell you in the study is that they never looked at the operational data. They, they kind of skimmed a few things out, but they did not assess the whole body of operational data that was produced in the remote viewing program. Um, I've been able to crunch the numbers in approximation, and they, they looked into about 4% of the research and 2% of their operational data in drawing that conclusion. So it is a totally unscientific conclusion that they rose at. And so basically, you know, the, the media sees that conclusion in their, in their report that, uh, there is, that it, RV was of no use. Totally false conclusion. And there's plenty of evidence that, in fact, it was of use at numerous times throughout its, its history. So, but the really telling thing about this is the CIA disbanded the program on June 30th. They didn't commission this report to start until July, till mid-July, and it wasn't completed until September. And they claimed they made the decision based on the report, but it's very obvious, even from their own documentation, that they had decided to kill the program before they had any evidence to justify it. So, you know, it, it's clearly, obviously bogus. So, so biased. Not that's not science, and that's not even true skepticism, which is all about coming in, questioning, yeah. and evaluating data, yes. and letting the data exactly. give you the answers. But the other part of the answer here is remote viewing didn't always work, and and so there was some justification to say this is a kind of a low information rich kind of a result because it's often hard to tell if one session is bogus. I don't say bogus because they're all sincerely done, but one session is is off in the weeds somewhere and the other session is on. It's very hard to tell that. And so, you know, only a certain percentage of the, of the intelligence value or of the data provides intelligence value from remote viewing. And so that's understandable, except when you look at all the other intelligence systems as well. So in general, you know, of course, satellite imagery is considered kind of like the gold standard of this, right? But if you know anything about satellite imagery, you will know that only about 2% of the satellite take is of any use at all. 2%. And we spend billions of dollars on our satellites. Now, that 2% is extremely valuable. But that's essentially a noise ratio of 50 to 1. <laughs> signal noise ratio of 50 to 1, right? Uh, the same thing is true of the human world and of the SIGINT world. And frankly, they are no less noisy in terms of information channels than is a remote viewing. So that's really not a justification to do away with remote viewing as an intelligence collection tool. Do you think, and I don't know if this is a little like conspiracy theoristy, do you think that the military is still using it and keeping that very secret? So first off, I'm absolutely certain the military is not. Now, can I prove it? No. But, but I know the cultural climate that led to its Getting them getting rid of it. I know their current situation in terms of budgeting and funding and all that stuff. And I know their position in the intelligence community. So I am, without being able to prove it, absolutely certain the military is not doing remote viewing. Okay. Now, that doesn't mean they're not every once in a while engaging in the service of remote viewers because I was, uh, I and my little group of viewers back in 2007 were asked by a army reserve component major command to try and uh, find a uh, missing serviceman in Iraq. 
and, and that's a long and, and sad story, so I'm not going to get into that right now. But but I so I do know they do that on a contingent basis when they have either get somebody to do it pro bono or, or they have some contingency funding that they can hire somebody. But they don't have their own program. I'm I'm absolutely sure of that. I am also sure the CIA does not. Um, I know certainly as of 2002 they didn't because they came looking to me and Hal Putoff to ask, a, well, not the CIA itself, but a, a third-tier executive in the CIA came you know, in that person's own uh, recognizance, their own initiative to come to talk to me and Hal about the possibility of what would it take to stand up another program in the CIA. They would, that person would not have asked us that if there was a program in the CIA at the time. And we talked to this person about it, and they went back to their boss, and it got shut down. <laughs> shut down. The, the higher upper level leadership, the CIA did not want to have anything to do with it. So there is one possible exception, and that is National Security Agency. Now, I say it's possible. I don't know for sure. It might not be. But they had actually a small program at the same time we did at Fort Meade. We, we know because we trained with a couple of their people. Where that program went from there, I don't know. But every once in a while, something comes out that makes me think maybe it's still going on. Most recently, a whistleblower who seemed to have some credibility, actually, mentioned the possibility such programs still existed. So I hope they're doing it. <laughs> you know, I, I think it's really kind of kind of dumb the military got out of it and the general intelligence world. And of course, the NSA kind of calls its own shots anyway. Technically, they're under uh, the umbrella of the CIA, but they've always been kind of independent. You know, there's been, uh, well, there's always rivalry between all the, all the different a agencies, which is actually a good thing. People don't realize that's a good thing. But uh, but the, C the NSA has a tendency to go pound sound if they don't like something the NSA wants them to do, you know, or doesn't want them to do. Uh, so I hope they're doing it. I think they should be. now. In a way, it's a good thing that the CIA canceled the program because that essentially forced them to declassify it. And it also, because they needed to justify it so that the, the senators and the Congress people who were behind the program didn't come after them, they needed to justify it. So they had to justify it by saying it didn't work. We didn't do it because it didn't work. But see, now they've got themselves painted into a corner here because we can we can go that allowed us to go out and talk about this stuff because they declassified the program mostly, and uh, and they declared it didn't work. We can go out and do and teach and say anything we want because if they then try and try and uh, bring us up on charges, you know, for violating our our uh, security agreements, whatever, uh, they are proving that it works <laughs> and that they're scared of it, right? And they can't they can't get away with doing that politically. That would be a nightmare for them. And so they basically gave free a, a blank check to people to talk about remote viewing, and that wouldn't have been the case if they if it had stayed classified. The public would not know about it today if that hadn't happened. Really good thing came from that because it's. I mean, I know how much people have been talking about it since it got declassified, and how much that verifies it. So there are quite a few other practical uses for remote viewing. Am I right? Do the police and detectives use it, for example, to find missing persons? So, yeah. In fact, I talk about this in one of the chapters of my, my latest book, The Essential Guide to Remote Viewing, um, is about how it's been put into use. And some police have used it. It has actually been proven to be successful in remote viewing in a, in a case or two. Police oftentimes are kind of spooked by it or they 
they at least don't want to be associated or they may use it, but don't want anybody to know they use it, right? So that has happened uh, that the police use it. It's being used actually even increasingly. It's been used in archaeology research, by the way. A guy named uh, Stephen Schwartz has used it quite successfully in a number of projects and um, a few others as well. But really, investing is where people want to want to go go with it. So actually, that was my next question was about investing. Isn't there some technique? What's it called again? Associative remote viewing? Yeah, so associative remote viewing. It's a way of applying remote viewing. Associative remote viewing, or as I'll call it, ARV, it isn't a kind of remote viewing. It's a way of using remote viewing. Okay, The idea is you're trying to predict a, a an out, the outcome of an event in the future so that you can make decisions now that may help you realize some value out of it in the future. So, for example, the most simple one is uh, sports betting, right? If you want to want to get into sports betting and you have two teams playing, and I always like to use my two uh, alma maters that have football game, football teams, uh, BYU, the Cougars, and, and the University of Texas Longhorns. My master's program came from a school that doesn't have any sports at all. That was the... the... I went to UT also. Oh, did you really? Yeah, yeah. We... When were you there? Oh, seven to 11. So we were there at the same time. No way. I was, I finished. Did we ever party? Were we ever at a fraternity no, party? No, I was in, in, my, in a PhD program. You, you don't have time for that okay. kind of stuff, right? I was a teenager, yeah. so yeah. I was probably drunk and at fraternity parties a lot of the time. So You didn't have to take any uh, basic philosophy courses, did you? I didn't. No, no. I took some philosophy in high school. I always loved philosophy. So well, that didn't do me any good because I was a philosophy TA at UT. See, right? So I, I had, I uh, worked with a lot of students there uh, during my my time. But yeah, so that's interesting. We overlap in some form or other. So let's say you have the Cougars and the Longhorns, uh, right? In a matchup, and they've done that twice actually, at least that I know of. And, and so I didn't go to the game because I couldn't decide which side to sit on. But anyway, actually, one of them I was in the air flying to Paris when that game happened. So, um, so you you want to bet on it, but if you just if you just try and guess, you're only going to get fifty percent of the time get it right. Over time, sometimes even worse than that. Um, and even if you try and remote view the outcome, because it's a binary question: is one or the other going to win? Remote viewing as a particular thing actually won't help you either because it devolves into a guessing situation. So how do you deal with that? Well, it, to leverage remote viewing is a descriptive methodology. In other words, it doesn't a thing where you can say, well, give me the address of somebody or, or what's the answer to this question in terms of uh, who's going to win or anything like that. What it does is it allows you, because it's perception-based, it allows you to perceive a descriptive things about targets, right? And so how you can use this kind of a, to use a football term, an end run around uh, around that problem. What you do, instead of having the remote viewer predict the game, the you being the, the project manager or the tasker, um, you decide, okay, so I'm going to pick two objects and one is going to stand for UT winning and one is going to stand for uh, the Cougars winning, the BYU Cougars winning. So what is it going to be? Well, let's see. I'll pick an apple and a pencil. Okay, The pencil stands for BYU winning, and the apple stands for the Longhorns winning. 
And so in this case, we'll say it's the Longhorns are going to win, right? So you tell, you, well, you don't know they're going to win. <clears throat> Ultimately, they're the, they're the ones that do win. But at the day before the game, you pick these objects, and you don't know which one is going to be the one that, that, that's going to stand for what team is going to win. <clears throat> I'm sorry, you do know. You just don't know which team's going to win. So you tell the viewer, I want you to describe for me the object I'm going to hand you day after tomorrow. And the viewer absolutely cannot know what these objects are. You have to keep them totally sequestered away from the viewer. Um, you, I want you to describe for me the object I'm going to hand you after the game has been played. Okay, so the viewer then describes, well, it's going to be red and kind of globular, kind of round, and it's got a sweet smell to it. It's a little hard, but but still kind of uh, squishy, sort of, and uh, and it tastes sweet. Well, you know it's not the pencil. <laughs> <laughs> and it sounds very much like an apple. So you look at what you've decided. You decided the apple stands for University of Texas winning. And so uh, you bet on the Longhorns. Okay. And lo and behold, the Longhorns do win. Okay. So at this point, this crucial step, you have to, after the game's been played, could be shortly after or the next day, or whatever, after the game is played, you have to give the viewer the object that stands for the team that won. In this case, it was a lawnmower. You give them the apple, and that completes this feedback loop. Essentially, the viewer is sending him or herself uh, a message from the future back to the present when they do that remote viewing session, right? Um, now, what really blows people's minds is if the viewer actually gets it wrong, and there is this thing called displacement. Sometimes they do remote view the wrong target. Um, if they... If it actually was the Cougars, the one you have to give them the pencil. You cannot show them the apple, or that confirms the wrong feedback loop, right? So that, that kind of freaks people out. It, it gets kind of hard to follow uh, the nuances of the process, but in very simple terms, I've described how it works. Okay, And um, it works to the extent that people have indeed made, in some cases, quite a bit of money on this. There was a guy named Greg Kolejezik, who was famous for other things as well. He decided he's going to give a try at ARV, long long-term project. And he worked on it and, and he did it all on his own using a computer. He didn't have another person involved. So this was even more of a challenge. Um, essentially, he did it for five years. And when he was five years, four years, something like that. Uh, when he was done, he had actually netted $150,000. Okay. Working always precognitively, working against targets that the outcome of which wasn't available at the time. Uh, my son, actually, when he was at the University of Colorado, um, he was in a class on, essentially, it, it was a, a science department class on scientific parapsychology and both the, the critical and the, and, the, uh, others, and the research side of it and all that. And their class project, they decided, uh, well, in fact, I was invited uh, to give a talk to the class and then do a workshop in the evening, and I decided to teach them how to do ARV. And so when I went home, they had this final project to do. So Christopher talked the class into doing an ARV project against the Fortune 500. And uh, in the process, they, made, they did seven trials. All seven of them worked out correctly. So the, the p-value was statistically significant because there was a relatively few number of trials. It wasn't very strong data, but it was still statistically uh, uh, significant data. 
But the telling thing was that one of the auditors of the class was a dot-com millionaire guy who was kind of interested in parapsychology. And when they came up with projects, project, he said, I'll tell you what, I'm going to kick 10K into this. You know, and, and if you lose it, I'm not going to charge you for it. But if you win, I get to keep proceeds. And by the time they were done, that 10K had grown to $27,000. And so that's another wow. case where it was very successful. And there's, there are numerous of these. There are some where it doesn't work. I think it's probably because people who do it don't know exactly what they're doing. They mess it up. Other times, things happen. You don't know what it is. That's the nature of remote viewing. But generally speaking, it has often been very successful. And people say, well, if you're psychic, why aren't you rich? Well, some of these guys are, are headed that direction, right? So so it is a very interesting application. And also, again, uh, involves precognition. Uh, it's very hard to cheat at this because uh, you're working against the target in the future, and everything has to be in place before the future happens, that future event happens, or it doesn't work. And in fact, if you try and and game the system, the process, you actually lose money. That's the beauty of this. It's self-penalizing. If you screw with the process, if you try and cheat, you you almost guaranteed to lose money instead of make it. So how would you even cheat at it? What did you mean by that? I don't see a way of doing it, frankly. Uh, so so, But the problem is if you don't do it right, you're going to lose money, right? And yeah, I said cheat, but I really don't know how you would cheat. You mean like not give the apple at the end, for example, like just skip a step or get sloppy on it? Maybe. Yeah, yeah. That, that's doing it wrong. You're not really cheating there, I guess, but but you're cheating on the process, I guess. I don't know. Uh, and, and that's the thing. It's very hard to figure out how you would cheat at this uh, and, and have any success at all. But you can screw up the process, mess with it, tinker with it, tinker with it in a way such that it actually decreases your chances of success. So, What percent, like you gave the example of associate remote viewing of the two teams of a really good remote viewer, what percentage on average would they get accurate? Well, obviously it's going to be have, have to be a seat of the seat of the pants thing. There are so many, many variables going to sorting this. Now there is a guy out there who is dedicating full time to this and has a company and everything else and does a lot of workshops and, and stuff. A guy named Marty Rosenblatt, who is keeping statistics on a lot of this stuff, but they're proprietary. So we don't get access to those. I hope someday we will, because I think there are probably some interesting revelations in there. But generally speaking, um, from my experience, roughly, I think a, an experienced remote viewer doing the process correctly is going to, in general, be successful about 70% of the time. Now, remember, this is 70% of the time when 50% is the expected norm, right? Uh, in binary, you're, you're, stock, you're uh, investing in stocks, stock gonna go up, go down, currency uh, gonna go up, go down, Bitcoin gonna go up, go down, uh, Longhorns of the Cougars gonna win. These are all binary decisions. You can do it for more, but the more variables you add, the more complicated it gets and the more likely you are to mess it up. So binary is generally what people prefer. So. Normally, if you were just guessing, you get 50%. But if you're using ARV and you know what you're doing, uh, in general, it's about 70%. I've seen folks have runs where they're up to 80% of the time. But uh, oftentimes it resets and you get down about 60%, right? So, so 70, I think, is a good planning figure, uh, which is still remarkable. 
but you don't grow money very fast if you're making essentially this is a two step forward one step back um kind of a proposition at 70 percent, and so you don't grow your funds and it's possible if you're not smart so so it's possible to be successful with arv and get your bets correct and still lose money and there's in the stock market it's because you might get three three hits in a row but it only goes up a, a buck a, a share right or something like that and then all of a sudden you get one miss and it drops fifteen dollars right and so you have been right three out of four times but you lost a lot of money be, even in spite of that we did that uh i did an early sports betting thing with a a former colleague of mine late colleague of mine gabriel fedgel uh, right when arv was starting to become a thing we decided we'd do a project and it was sports betting, and we were correct on eighty percent of the trade of the of the bets, and we lost money. And I think we did. I could. I'd have to look into my files, but I think we did about twenty five or thirty bets, and we were right eighty percent of the time. We lost money because we didn't know about point spread, so we're picking the right winners, but we were not betting outside the point spread, and so. So we were losing because part of the deal is you got to get the point spread right. And had, we were total total amateurs with this at the betting part of it. The remote viewing part, we're doing really well. The betting part, we failed at. So so uh, that can happen. So you didn't make money, but you still proved or... Yeah, proved it worked. This question is going to be a little more philosophical. So I know that we, in your class, you did examples where people, you had people remote view somewhere you went in the past, somewhere you currently were, and somewhere in the future. And people still accurately seems like equally able to go past, future, and present. How do you process that in terms of the meaning of time? I'm still puzzling over the past, surprisingly, how that works. So so what I tell people generally is remote viewing the present, you're 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 you at least will show evidence that you successfully remote view the present the majority of the time, and I'm going to throw that seventy percent figure out again because it seems about right. Okay, seventy uh, percent of the time you're going to show evidence that you really did remote view. Doesn't mean it may be a high quality session, but there will be details in there that you got right that you could not have guessed. Right, that it had to have been some kind of ESP kind of thing. Again, remembering you're working under blind and usually double blind conditions. So, uh, and that ratio seems to hang, hold true of past, removing the past as well. But if you're removing what I call the open future, which is like any given event, trying to, trying to predict something in the future, that success rate drops to, there's no precise figure, but I'm gonna say roughly about 5%. So it drops dramatically, okay? doesn't hold true in ARV for a reason I'll explain here in a second. Um, and I think the reason the future doesn't work like that is because the future doesn't exist. Now, I know there's people say, well, duh, you know, the future doesn't exist. But there are plenty of people out there holding the theory that the future does exist, that we're actually in a block universe where instead of the universe unfolding into the future, we are a point of perception that's just moving along a, a, a timeline that already exists. I think the remote viewing evidence is, is strong that that isn't the case, that, that we don't live in a block universe. But that's a very highly resist, idea resistant to change uh, that exists because so many people believe it. 
And one of the reasons they believe is they say, well, if the block universe doesn't exist, how can you remote view the future? And I said, you don't remote view the future. The reason we think you do is because of those 5% times when we get it right. right? And because generally speaking, it's human nature to report the things that succeed and not report the things that don't succeed. And so, so you hear about the 5% that succeed, the 95% that fail, you don't hear about them usually. ARV is a different kind of animal because what you're doing is setting up an actual future that, that is going to exist. It's a feedback loop, right? You essentially collapse all the probable futures in one small corner of the timeline down to a, a certainty. And that is the feedback event. You essentially make a contract with your viewer that at a certain point in time in the future, they are going to have that experience. And so you establish that as a kind of concrete locked-in future event. And that's why that works just as well as remoting the future or the past. But otherwise, the future doesn't work all that well. Now, in our, in our experiments in the remote viewing class, we actually, if you'll think about it, you did get a feedback loop, didn't you? Because I told you in the future, once we had done that, I gave you that feedback. So essentially, it was a kind of an ARV sort of an experience in a way. And people don't think about that when they think about remote viewing the future. I've often heard, even, in fact, Marty arguing that, well, the future is already set because ARV works. And I say, no. ARV is a special circumstance that doesn't actually prove anything about the future, uh, other than you can remote view a certain set of futures. Um, so, yeah. And so philosophically, I'm I'm a believer in the uh, non-fixed future, in the in a set of probable futures that aren't reified. They haven't come real yet, and uh, occasionally you get one right, but uh, oftentimes that may be because you get the feedback on that that one thing. Uh, and then you have that that loop, that closed loop. And what exactly your remote view and the remote view of the past? I don't know. That's that's a puzzle. That's a real puzzle. And, and the thing I can say most about it is that I don't know how it works, but it works. It's very demonstrable. The data proves that it works. Do you think there's any chance NASA will end up using this or will be able to use this for space exploration? If you don't mind sharing what happened with Ingo Swan having some verification of exploring other planets. Yeah. So obviously when you're dealing with something like remote viewing, you start thinking, well, what could be possible? What could you do with this? And, and one of them is extraplanetary exploration. Right. And, uh, and NASA has played around, played around with it actually. Um, in fact, way early, uh, and when the program was first getting started at SRI, Russell Targ, who was one of the directors of the program for, for a long time, he brought a contract from NASA for an ESP trainer to SRI, and that was some of the early funding. Um, so they were interested in it. I don't think they are right now, but uh, Edgar Mitchell, who was the sixth man to walk on the moon, an astronaut, founded the Institute of Noetic Sciences and has quite a player not just in the world of space exploration, but also in the world of inner space exploration consciousness and you know applying consciousness. He actually he did a an ESP experiment while he was in orbit. And so so yeah, they played around with it a bit. Now will it will NASA then continue on from there? You know, who knows? Right now I don't think they have much interest in it, but it's always possible. But Ingo, uh, very early in the remote viewing saga, did have a success. It was quite remarkable. They were sending a, NASA was sending a probe, and I'm not Voyager, I'm blanking on what the name of the probe was. Anyway, it was sent out to explore some of the, the gas giants. He was doing a flyby of 
of Jupiter, I think Saturn. Could have been one of the Voyagers, but I might be wrong about that. And so Inga was asked in advance to remote view Jupiter and see if he could come up with some of the some of some of the details that that uh, the space probe might be able to confirm. The idea was, oh, here's a golden opportunity to try exo exo Earth, <laughs> extra extra Earth. What do we want to say? Extraplanetary, extraterrestrial, right? Exploration to determine whether remote viewing can do that and be able to get data that confirms or or rejects that idea. So he remote viewed it and he came up with a bunch of stuff which hasn't been confirmed yet. It's generally like he felt he described a uh, rocky core to the planet and with these mountains on it. Whether or not that's true, we don't know. Generally, mainstream science doesn't accept that at the moment, but it, I don't think it's been actually discounted. It's theoretical. So we'll see if Ingo's ever right about that. But one other thing he described, he says rings. And I think there was the objection, well, this is not Saturn, this is Jupiter. And it was something like, well, I'm sorry, I'm getting rings. <laughs> and so he described the rings and sketched them and it had an actual sketch. And so that was also kind of dismissed. You know, Saturn has rings, Jupiter doesn't have rings because we never saw them from Earth. We never saw them in our telescopes. And sure enough, that probe confirmed Jupiter has a very nice set of rings. They're just fairly thin, and I think they're edge-on or something. And so we were not getting that. So this is a case where remote viewing produced absolutely correct results that were discounted based on the current science and later confirmed to be true. And that's a very nice, clean kind of experiment that way. Approximately 185,000 murder cases went unsolved from 1980 to 2019. On average, 66% of homicides are solved each year. So what about the other 34%? Alarmingly, the number of murder cases that went unsolved by police hit a new high in 2020, resulting in only 50% of cases being solved, leaving far too many families with no answers, no resolution, no closure. That's why we investigate and report on unsolved cases, to spread the word in hopes of helping families who are searching for answers. We don't sleep, we're just actively looking for her. These girls were alive, they were living, breathing people, they weren't a picture in the media. There was a, a body found in a truck recently. None of us know anything about that body, who, who was it, what happened. What could have happened? Who could have been involved? There's no answer. And, and it's just horrible. A true crime series investigating mysterious unsolved cases. Real people, real stories, real crimes. Tune into Speaking of Crime with your hosts, Gia and John. Available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. We are at Speaking of Crime on Instagram and Facebook and at Crime Speaking on Twitter. everyone. I'm so excited to share that my book, What the Fuck Just Happened? A Sciency Skeptic Explores Grief, Healing, and Evidence of an Afterlife is available now for sale. If you go to wtfjusthappened.net, you can see the link to buy it. I'll also have the link in the podcast show notes.
I know many of you want to know how exactly did I come to change my mind about the afterlife? Well, this book is all about the first stages of my exploration into this afterlife evidence to where I'm at today. It starts with the awful part of when I lost my dad, how as a science-minded atheist, I first began to explore if there was any possibility of an afterlife and what and who I found most compelling. I also share some stuff that was not so compelling, such as a very clearly fake psychic medium reading and a pretty ridiculous seance, but that's balanced by some amazing peer-reviewed studies on mediums, medium readings, parapsychologists, and just a whole bunch of what the fucks, including some really inexplicable personal things that happened to me, and some really incredible signs I got from my dad. Despite the topic, it's actually funny, mainly because I'm just like such an awkward person. And you also get to learn about all the amazing people and incredible characters I met along the way, as well as more about the research that helped change my mind. And some of the people you learn about have become some of my really good friends and mentors today. So go to wtfjusthappened.net and order it. If you've already read it, please rate and review on Amazon. I cannot tell you how helpful that is. And share with any friends who might be interested. Thank you all. I'm so excited to finally share the full details of this crazy exploration with all of you. And now we're going to pause for a second for the question of the week. So this week I'm addressing something that actually isn't a question, but I thought I'd address it because it comes up a lot. So when I go to group medium readings, sometimes people who don't get read get really upset and I completely get that. And so I'm in no way telling you not to be upset or what to feel, but it's happened to me a lot where I go to groups and I don't get read. So I'm going to give you a tip that helps me. And next week, I'm going to address this further and say a little bit of what mediums have to say about it. But for now, I'll give you this little experiment I do. It won't get you read, but it is what I like to do when other people get readings and I'm not. And again, this is from my perspective only. I do not want to tell you how to feel. Way too many people do that to us when we are in grief. So my personal main concern is really if only we do actually survive bodily death. And I just want to get as much evidence, even still, as possible. So if my dad or other loved ones, such as my grandparents, Fran, some of my animals, don't come through during a group reading, in the big picture, that doesn't really matter to me that much. Sure, it's so nice to hear from them, and I do get private readings that I obviously do love to hear from them. But if consciousness survives bodily death, that's all that matters, because that means I will see them again, and I'll get to continue myself. So when others get readings, I like to do this experiment to get more evidence. I note each thing the medium is saying as best I can, since some speak really fast. And then I try to score their readings against myself. 
that helps me see how really specific their readings are. Very, very rarely in those situations have readings been able to apply to me. I think there was one time and it was just bizarre. This one woman and I had almost exactly the same situation and it was her uncle, but my dad and they were just so weirdly similar. The name of the street of the cafe that my parents met at was the name of his business. So it, I mean, it was bizarrely specific, but they realized it was for her because we also had Joe Shiel at the time doing drawings and the drawings. He's a spirit artist and the drawings applied to her and I didn't recognize the person at all. And oh, I should just say a spirit artist is someone who will sketch the imagery they get of someone's deceased loved ones and they've never seen them. And often it will even be someone's husband or wife. So not a biological relationship. So when that happens and it's that accurate, that is crazy evidential. And I've seen that happen a lot, but I'm digressing. But that's how we knew it was for her and not me. But that is the only time in five years of researching this that something could have applied so accurately and closely to me. So I want to note also that when I do this experiment, I do it for each individual point. Like if the medium says I have a mother figure on the other side, I get that your mother has passed. So for me, that's a no. But then if she says your mother loved to read, yes, my dad did and my mom does. So even if she's describing a mother on the other side and that doesn't apply to me, I will still take the characteristics of this sitter's mother and apply them to my dad or my living mom. This helps me see that, well, with some mediums at least, how remarkably specific they are. And that just helps give me evidence that we do survive bodily death. And at the end of the day, it's not about getting readings. It's about seeing our loved ones again. If you have a question you want me to answer, send it to hello at wtfjusthappened.net and put question of the week in the subject. I know I usually say first names, but if you want to be completely anonymous, let me know. And feel free to reach out anyway, even if you don't have a question. I can't wait to hear your questions and hear from you. This has been such an eye-opening, fun conversation. And there was so much data and evidence. And it was all also just really fascinating. So thank you so much. Where can our listeners find you? Well, of course, my my main home on the uh, internet is my website, which is rviewer.com, the letter R in the word viewer. So R-V-I-E-W-E-R.com. <clears throat> And you go to there and it talks about my commercial training program. I teach people how to remote view. Um, I've reduced my workload lately because I am 70. <laughs> and my <clears throat> spouse is insistent that I need to retire. Uh, and I'm not quite as convinced that's true, but I do feel the need to slow down a little bit. But I'm still offering courses. I need to get some more schedule up there. I have one in Germany coming up in June. So if there's any German folks that want to learn controlled remote viewing, I'm going to be teaching it, I think, Class starts the 12th of June in Weimar, Germany, taught in German, although some of it I have to do in English because my German vocabulary doesn't always reach to the more complex things I have to explain. 
but uh, but that's coming up, and I'm going to schedule some more classes as as things unfold for the future. But there's also additional information on there where if you don't want to pay the relatively steep costs of my class, I admit they're expensive, but you get what you pay for in my classes. There is information there for free about remote viewing uh, under the uh, RV in depth. I think is the is the tab up above, and I talk about things like ARV and different kinds of remote viewing and the history of it and and various things. So so that's a good place to go. My remote viewing blog is also linked there. And I have all kinds of stories on there you might find interesting as well as dealing with controversies in remote viewing and, and kind of instructional stuff as well. Uh, in fact, the great Santa Claus caper is described on in one of my articles on my blog. I find that interesting. Probably the best one of the best places to start though is my book, The Essential Guide to Remote Viewing. The purpose of that book was to fill a gap in the literature which is for an a entry-level book that is accessible to everybody, including people who may know quite a bit about remote viewing but have gaps in their knowledge. But this is the book that if you really have just found out about remote viewing, just now heard about it, in fact, uh, you can go to that book and it will give you a really good overview of it in a non-sensational way. I try and just, just kind of adjust the facts, ma'am, but written engagingly. And, uh, and it will get you a really good foot into the remote viewing world. Uh, even if it's just to satisfy your curiosity. But it's also a book you can give if you're already in remote viewing, give to your relatives and friends who might be dubious about your involvement. This will show them that it's not a wacky, stupid, crazy thing to do, that there's actually, rash, it's actually rational and there's some reasonable stuff behind it. And I, and I give arguments, you know, some rebuttals to skeptical arguments against it and stuff, uh, along with a, 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 a couple of chapters on how to do it yourself. And then uh, it's also useful for people who have been in it a long time but may have holes in their knowledge. This will help plug those holes. I do have another book, which has been out a long time. It's called Reading the Enemy's Mind. And that's um, my experiences in the remote viewing program. But it's added, I've added to it with a lot of documentation and a lot of more of the story that I wasn't part of, but I've interviewed 50 to 60 people who were uh, very much engaged in this. And uh, and it's been both, both Hal Putoff and Ingo Swan, the two founders of remote viewing, essentially, both of them have very loudly praised this book as finding, finally getting the story right. So there you go. That That's probably way more than you can digest, certainly more you're going to digest, digest in an afternoon. So uh, have at it. To get more information on what the fuck just happened, go to wtfjusthappened.net. There you can order my book, What the Fuck Just Happened? A Sciency Skeptic Explores Grief, Healing, and Evidence of an Afterlife. And you can learn all about how I came to conclude that there most likely is an afterlife. You can also learn about the early stages of my grief and the amazing, fascinating people I met along the way. You can also read about how much I harassed them trying to get evidence, see if they were cheating, and see if they were sane. There, you can subscribe to our newsletter. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. It makes such a difference, especially for a new podcast like this one. And if any of you have had a crazy what the fuck yourself, have any questions, feedback, or just want to say hi, 
reach out on either Instagram at WTF underscore just underscore happened underscore or email me at hello at WTF just happened.net. And remember, you don't have to draw any final conclusions as you wonder what the fuck just happened. <laughs>